Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax audit and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. We were in such a hurry to say goodbye to 2020 that we assumed 2021 would be different, better maybe even. I'm Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched and longest running source of Carolina business policy and public affairs seen every week across the Carolinas for more than 30 years now. Thank you for supporting this dialogue. In a moment, we start with part two of our special year-end, year-beginning two-part series around economic forecast. And that starts in a moment with four of our resident economists. Stay with us. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at Bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, an economic forecast for 2021, featuring Sarah House of Wells Fargo Securities, Dr. John Connaughton of UNC Charlotte, Dr. Doug Woodward from the Darlamore School of Business, University of South Carolina, and Dr. Frank Hefner from the College of Charleston. Happy New Year and welcome back to the most widely watched program here in the Carolinas about business policy and public affairs. We are glad to be on part two of what is an economic forecast with our resident uh, uh, economists and we're glad to have them all back. Gentlemen, lady, welcome and Sarah, we again, we'll start with you. Sarah, do you expect that the uh, advent and the application of vaccines now, will that be a game changer? Is it all going to be different? Are we going back to normal? It will be a game changer to an extent, but I don't think we're going fully back to normal for, for quite a while. So one, it's going to take some time for these vaccines to roll out. And so I think the first half of the year will look very different than the second half of the year. Um, you still need to get people to, to take these vaccines. So even when it does become widely available and enough for, for every American to, to have one. Um, but I think by and large, we're already seeing the relationship with the virus change a little bit. So people have a higher risk tolerance, businesses have adapted in, in ways where we can continue on with some semblance of, of normal and still feel some somewhat safe. And so um, I think that's gonna help the, the overall outlook in, as the year progresses. Um, but I think you know second half of the year will look a, a little bit more like what we saw pre-pandemic, but I think some things which we can get into um, are, are some trends are, are probably going to be sticking around for a while. Dr. Connaughton, do you expect certainty to come back in, come rushing back in because of the vaccine? No, no, that's not going to happen. First of all, you know, so far what we know is we've got 
uh, 50 million, that's 25 million doses of the, the Pfizer vaccine uh, that can be distributed between now and say the end of January. Uh, next week, uh, excuse me, the, the, the Moderna is, when we're taping this, is on track to be um, approved as well. That's another 50 million doses of 20. So we got 50 million people who will probably get vaccinated or fit in the first quarter of the year. There's no indication as to what the, the ramp up is for, for other vaccines that will come for approval or for uh, additional doses of the Pfizer and, and Moderna and how quickly they'll come. So I really don't expect to see much of a change in the first quarter of this year because we're going to be focusing on healthcare workers, first responders, elderly and, elderly and nursing homes, and they're not the ones that drive the economy. Okay. And so, you know, it's not going to be till the second quarter we get some kind of idea what this is going to, what, if this is going to be a game changer or not. Dr. Hefner, Dr. Woodward, what do you think? Well, uh, I'm saying with, with um, second half of the year is, is really, really when things will start to improve for the broader economy, especially if we can open up to travel. That's the part of the economy that's been suppressed so much. And that includes business travel. When people can show that they've, they've got immunity, they've taken a vaccine and they can test this, it's going to take a while, but I, I, we, we want to do it. So I think it's, it's going to be uh, the second part of 2021 where we're going to see the economy that's been hurt the most is going to start to be able to benefit and open up and we're really going to move back to normal. So from that point of view, I think the uh, vaccine is a game changer for 2021. So you used an interesting term, back to normal. I mean, I kind of remember from the last recession where for years we were talking, is this the new normal? Um, so we're, we're going to go through where there's a whole generation of our students coming out that have no idea what we mean when we say what is normal because they've been used to this. And, and one thing about people is once they get used to something, they accommodate and they, they deal with it. And so to the extent that some of the protocols that we've established right now. Uh, yes, I think the vaccine could be a game changer. There's so many uncertainties there. I hate to speculate on them because I'm not a scientist in that area and I don't want to add fuel to fires where people aren't sure about vaccines. But we've established protocols on hygiene that I hope we continue to see as part of the new normal. And not necessarily face masks, but certainly hand washing and things like that. And then also cleanliness and hygiene in public spaces. We need to keep doing that for the next, for the rest of my life, the rest of everyone else's life. And that I'm hoping will become the new normal. Let, let, let's look down the road here in 2021 and, com and compare and contrast to 2020. And Sarah, back to you on this. So education uh, really was, um, I wouldn't say hollowed out when it came to funding, but w w was certainly uncertain. And uh, so two questions. You've got education and then you've got commercial and residential real estate. Two different ends of the spectrum. Let's start with education. What happens with education funding, both public but also at the higher ed level? Are we going to see a continued surprise in whatever new education funding looks like? Well, I think obviously state and local governments are, are going to be under a lot of a lot of pressure. So the budget situations aren't nearly as dire as I think is is what a lot of um, budget analysts were expecting at the onset of the crisis. In part, thanks to that fiscal stimulus, that strong that strong good spending. Um, but I think you are still going to see budgets under pressure. Um, but I think just you know one area where, where we were just talking about the vaccine could could be a game changer is just getting kids back in school, and so that has widespread. Uh, 
had uh, implications for things like just parents going back to, to work too. So that'll be important for, for the labor market as, as well this year. Um, as far as the, the real estate market, so um, we're expecting that housing will continue continue to do really well this year. So even as um, maybe that need for space isn't quite as dramatic as what it was in, in 2020, and you still have some pretty favorable effects going on, like low mortgage rates, um, millennials in 2021, the, the oldest of them will, will actually turn 40. So they're at their um, family forming, home buying years. And so that's very supportive. Um, but on the flip side, you're still going to see a lot of pressure on you know smaller apartment living. I think um, even as we see workers going back to the office, um, businesses probably won't need quite as much, realize they don't need quite as much space and, and they've grown more comfortable with, with remote work. And so I think you're going to see a, a lot of different dynamics play out in, in the year ahead where some of the trends that we saw set into motion in, in 2020 will, will stick around for a while. Gentlemen, what do you think? I think um, South Carolina is going to benefit a lot from this in the turn, in sense of in more in migration for a lot of the points that uh, Sarah just uh, alluded to. And one of them is if you're in a large city, a Detroit, a New York or a Boston, and, and you're finding what happens when you have lockdowns and you find that they, life is, is real difficult in these huge environments, uh, we're already seeing an influx of people coming into the low country who are trying to find a different quality of life. And that's helping besides low interest rates, propping up our housing market or residential market. I think we're gonna see that continuing as people decide to telecommute and they wanna get into uh, what right now we're looking at like safer environments, but they, I think they're gonna find lifestyle issues also become. So it's gonna be a restructuring across the board. I agree with Frank. I think the Carolinas are gonna benefit a lot going forward because of the migration where we saw before it, I look going into 2019, we were getting a significant net in migration in the Carolina, North Carolina, more from the North, like from the South Carolina, more from North Carolina, oddly enough, but a lot of people coming in from the North is this remote work trend, which I think is going to continue benefits us. We used to think our low density cities were a disadvantage. You know, people wanted to congregate in density cities uh, because of what we call urban agglomeration. I think that's flipping right now, where now lower density areas that we have in the Carolina cities are more sprawled out, which we used to think that was a negative, becomes a positive for us. Uh, and I think our housing is going to continue to do well. Uh, and we're going to see growing population. So, John, back to. Oh, I was going to say, I just want to. Yeah, a couple of observations on. on I want to go back where Frank was about <clears throat> behavior. And this is going to be real interesting going forward. We've seen a lot of changes in the way people behave socially and interact socially. And I think that's going to have some significant in impacts on businesses going forward in terms of proximity of seating, um, certainly the way they pack airlines. Right. Uh, it, it, you know, intra-city transportation, buses and subways. Uh, I think there are a lot of things that are gonna change as a result of this that are gonna be permanent. Uh, people are gonna change the way, it's not just that because of COVID, but now, yeah, I don't wanna get a cold, I don't wanna get the flu, whatever. And so I think people are gonna to start to change and I think that's gonna have some ripple effects throughout, throughout the national economy as a result. I, I don't wanna leave this, and I mentioned education, and I'm, I'm sensitive that three of you are employed by higher education, but I'm still, I'm gonna put you on the spot here a little bit. Doug, um, USC is a major employer, not just the Midlands, but across the state. Um, uh, and not just USC, but any education, any higher educational institution, private, small, parochial, Catholic, whatever, how many, 
how does this, how does coming out of what we just experienced with COVID and the implications of the public health care crisis, I mean, we've even had university presidents say clearly some schools are going away and there will be consolidation. Will this be widespread or will it be anecdotal? I think more on the anecdotal side. I think, well, at least the, the, the big state use, like where I teach it, to South Carolina, we worried a lot about a significant loss of student enrollment in 2020. It didn't happen. We, we met our targets. Students came back. They, they're valuing um, edu higher education more than they did before. Before, they were wondering, why are we paying this high tuition? Now they're sitting at home, and they're beginning to understand why they like the interactions that they get with students and with professors in, um, in a university campus. And it's, it's really working to our benefit. Now, that's not going to help all colleges. I think the smaller liberal arts colleges that were struggling before are probably the ones uh, they're going to they're going to potentially go under. Uh, there'll be some shakeout. Plus, the demographics, you know, are not in our favor. There's a, a shrinking student population. So, uh, some are going are, are to come out of this even better, but there 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 will be a shakeout. I think in higher education. The other thing that's odd is that uh, community college enrollment is is not been as high as you would expect at this time. So that's another thing we have to think about in the future. Why is that happening? We would think that would we'd see more back to school to get skills uh, at this time when the economy is not doing well. And this is, a, this is a question for anyone. Do you expect that there's going to be continued pricing power on tu tuition? And I'm not talking about tuition increases, just maintaining the current tuition level. So, I'll just chime in with what Doug said earlier. We've seen an increase in enrollment this year uh, versus last year at UNC at Charlotte. UNCC, UNC Charlotte. Yeah, and uh, you know, again, but I, I want to. This is something that's fairly interesting uh, to me, anyway. There had been a lot of push of, to online classes uh, in the past decade or so. Um, some schools have you know, gone into this much heavier than others, but what we've what I've found anyway, and I think a lot of us have found, is that now that we have a lot of online delivery of our courses, it's not quite the same, and it doesn't work for all students. There is a percentage of the students where this is just as good as in-person, but there's a significant percent of students where this is not just as good as in-person. It, it's hard sometimes for students to engage, um, and so I think we'll, the, the, the push for online is probably going to get kind of pushed aside when, when this is all over and we can have 100% in-person classes or close to that in-person classes, probably uh, in, this, in the fall of 2021. Sarah? And I'll just say that, John, people value this experience now. And to get back to Chris's question, uh, we'll want to pay, they know what they're paying for, you know, with this, this higher tuition. Uh, they, they, they see this when they have to go online and they're missing that. Uh, so I, I think uh, universities that, that provide a good experience for children are or for students are going to do uh, well and be able to keep, at least keep the line on, on the, I think it's, it's, it's recognized as something uh, that people are willing to pay for. Sarah, mm -hmm. yeah, I knew you were trying to get in there, please. No, I, I think the gentleman covered it. Well, thanks. Okay. Well, I want to, uh, Doug raised the issue of children, and, and that's the concern I have about my future classes as they come into colleges. I mean, we already know there's a slip in the summer vacation in elementary schools in terms of retention of material and readiness to go to class. Well, with everything that's been going on, the, the, we're already reporting possibly increasing slippages. So we're going to have potentially a number of students who are going to be starting various grade levels 
in elementary and high school that are going to be behind the curve compared to say 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a big concern for us going forward. It's nothing that as an economist we can deal with. Uh, educators, I mean, they already realize this. So hopefully they'll come up with a plan that deals with it and effectively solve the problem. Uh, and just to follow up on that quickly, Frank, but, but if everyone is under the same pressure, and I, I understand you say not just year over year, but 10 years comparatively to 10 years, but if everyone, both undergrad, K through 12, have the same, let's call it a gap year to some degree, uh, is it really going to matter over a longer term if everyone is held to the same standard? But everybody's not having the same gap year. Comparing each other to each other, you know, I mean, well, you know, but in one sense, if you're comparing students now to 10 years ago, it does matter. And so that affects a whole host of other issues, yeah, productivity, future growth, and things like that. It's not as relevant to uh, university students. They, they don't necessarily have the same slippage. It's really relevant to lower grades. And, and that needs to be dealt with. And, and uh, thank goodness, there are a lot of educators that are already aware of it. And, and I'm sure they're going to hopefully come up with a good plan for it. But, but Chris, not, not everybody has experienced that gap. Yeah, I, I, but I want to ask you something specifically, John, because you said in public comments recently uh, that consumer confidence was on shaky ground. Uh, how shaky? Well, it had been shaky for quite a while during this pandemic, but the October number was up, which I think surprised everybody. But that was before the, the recent spike, and so we'll see what happens. Uh, but it's not anywhere near where it was a year ago. It's considerably off. I mean, in February of 2020, it was 130 the, the consumer confidence number, you know, it got as low as in the high 70s, but now it's at 96, but it's still way off from where it was when this thing started. And that's the October number, like I said, before we've seen this fourth quarter spike. This, 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 the fourth quarter spike is something that's going to be very interesting to see what, how it plays out. We won't know until the end of January when the GDP number comes out. Uh, but there are a lot of economists that were expecting another, not a double digit increase in GDP annualized rate increase in GDP in the fourth quarter, but something in the, the high single digits, 7%, 8%, uh, that might not transpire. Sarah, that's so, certainly, go ahead, please, I'm, I'm sorry. No, I was gonna go back to history. If no, I don't no, no, hold on, hold on, Frank. We gotta let Sarah, we keep uh, stepping over around this. Go ahead, Sarah. Uh, well, I was just gonna say, I think we are already seeing that, that slowdown. If you look at some of the latest job, jobs figures, um, even some of the spending data. And so, um, you know, really where that's starting to, to hit is late in the quarter and, you know, probably the December numbers are, are gonna be pretty ugly as well. And so we are looking at um, pretty weak rate of, of growth kind of out of the gate in, in 2021, just as we do have this overhang of, of this latest wave of, of COVID and renewed efforts to combat it. So whether that's people's own behavioral changes or some of the localized restrictions that we've seen as well. Go ahead, Frank. So John alluded to the fact that the last time we've seen anything like this was the pandemic of 1918 and 19, which of course was, you know, to spread while like wildfires returning troops came back in and went around the world. Uh, we're now seeing how interconnectivity worldwide helps spread these things very quickly. I mean, from China to Milan, for example, I mean, very quickly. But um, I just re remind everyone about the history of it. Following 1919 was the Roaring Twenties. And so I think the question then is, is there, you know, we're gonna see a similar event in terms of pent up demands and pent up demands and loose monetary policy. Uh, could this, spur a roaring 20 type situation. 
And, and that, that's, that's a very likely scenario. Well, we've already had a roaring 20 type situation in the stock market. Exactly. We're already to 1929 in yes. the stock market. So we, we skipped the whole uh, roaring 20s and got right to the, uh, the precipice of the depression, you know, and just looking at the stock market, which is very contraction in the economy this market boomed yeah. i don't think that's really ever happened before um, we've got a few minutes left i'm sorry sir we've got a few minutes left and sarah maybe you can lean on this one we've got a few minutes left and the idea that it was no small thing that there was a change in the white house there is a change in the white house that's change in political leadership and yet to see about these special elections in georgia but during at the, at the time of this taping yet, there has been no decision about the Senate race in Georgia. Um, but if we look at political leadership, that means policy, that means fiscal policy. Um, what can we expect in 2020 when it comes to fiscal policy, either in Congress or in the White House? So I think it's still going to be pretty tough to get anything major done beyond some additional COVID relief. So, um, you know, as as we're talking right now, um, we don't have a, a, another uh, another support package. Um, but I think when you look at the fact that even if um, the Democrats end up taking the Senate, which is not our base expectations and not really where you know we're to be pretty tough to get any sort of sweeping major legislation done under development. And so we're not looking for major policy changes. Instead, it's going to be uh, around the edges and really where, um, where you can do executive orders. So that goes back to trade. So trade's probably um, likely to crop back up on the list of topics as, as the COVID situation improves. Um, it's also going to be in terms of, of judicial, um, thing, regulatory um, policy as, as well. So um, I think in, in many ways, the, the policy changes in the upcoming year with divided government are, are probably likely to be fairly, fairly small. Anybody a different take? I, I think that in general, the political impact on the economy is pretty small, uh, regardless of whether it's Republican or Democrat, regardless of whether or not the, the Senate goes Democrat or Republican. Um, I'm not sure it's going to matter a whole lot. I think that the pent up demand that we have and the effectiveness of the vaccine over the first half of the year are really what's going to rule 2021. Um, if it goes as expected and we, you know, the vaccine works and people take it and sometime by the middle of the year we reach so-called herd immunity between a combination of infection and vaccine, um, then the second half of the year is going to be fine no matter what takes place in Congress or what the executive orders the president puts into place. Frank, uh, Frank and Doug, what about monetary policy? Is, is Powell secure in his job? Is there some sense that there's going to be stability on the high, in, in, in the, the federal bank? Well, I think in general, there's going to be more stability with this administration than there was the last administration just across the board in terms of positions. Uh, we're not going to see that uh, rotating revolving door where people come in and they're out. I mean, how many secretaries of defense have we had, et cetera, et cetera. But um, no, I think what I'd like to say in terms of what the year is going to look like, uh, with all the quantitative easing, or however you want to call it, since we've been calling it that since about 2010, I'm still going to maintain that we're going to have an inflation and interest rates are going to go up. And one of these years, I'm going to get it right. But I'm not too sure <laughs> well, it's going to be this Frank, year. Frank, this might be the year because we have 
talked about it. One of the reasons inflation might go up is because the dollar value is going down. That means we're importing more at higher prices, gives more power to domestic producers. And I think that's something people aren't paying enough attention to when we talk about monetary policy. We've had this big expansion of liquidity that's also been depreciating the dollar. And that's typically where you get into trouble and you start to get into an inflationary spiral. And that's going to change the whole nature of Fed policy. They can't keep saying we're just going to keep doing this forever. They're going to have to deal with a real problem. I really pay attention to how the dollar performs. In well, so are you saying... Sorry, hold on one second, Sarah. So, Doug, are you saying in so many words that you expect inflation to creep back up this year, coming year? It will creep back up, yes. I mean, all that liquidity there is now in assets. It's going to start going back into goods and services is what we talk about inflation. So we'll start to see it tick up. And I, I think this would be very interesting to watch. I'm not saying it's going to happen, you know, quickly, but it's, it's going to happen. Uh, and I, I think we'll start to see that. Okay, Sarah, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Please. Yeah, I, I'd say it's more of a, actually a services story. So even with, with the dollar depreciating, I mean, goods only make up a, a third of, of the total inflation index and even less of, of what's the, the core, kind of the, the benchmark that the Fed's looking at when, when they're setting monetary policy. I think it's it's really some of the services where there is some pent up demand and people haven't been able to get out and, and get out and about, that's where you're likely to see the inflation. So we've actually already seen pretty strong goods inflation this year as you have seen supply chain issues and, and some bottlenecks. But I think as consumers shift their, their spending back towards services and they've kind of stocked up on a lot of the goods that they, they need for, for a while, that it's really going to be services where we get the, the lift to inflation. Uh, lady, gentlemen, thank you. It seems like we've kind of got a consensus on inflation, so we'll stop there and, and hold your feet to the fire next year, 12 months from now on that same one. But we so appreciate you all joining us every time. You're great sports, and especially when we're doing it here virtually with all the technology challenges. Uh, you're thoroughgoing professionals, and we greatly appreciate it. So thank you, and Happy New Year to you all. Thank Happy you for joining us. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year to you. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, carolinabusinessreview.org. Major funding for week, Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, the Duke Endowment, Bearings, Grant Thornton, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.